Good morning, church. Well, as Pastor Mateo read, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8. Last week, we started a series looking at these faith foundations. And what faith foundations are is they are the the basic principles, the, the core of what we as believers believe. These are the foundational truths that we find in Scripture that, de- that help define life for us, that help give us philosophies, that help give us theology. Th- this is who we believe God is and who, believe God, who we believe God has um, pre- predestined us to be as well. The beginning of this year, we started through uh, walking through the Gospel of Luke. And this Faith Foundations series fits right in the middle of, of this book, Luke chapter 8. And, and the beautiful thing about this is we unpack uh, a pretty difficult question this morning, and really, uh, to be honest, it's going to be a part one and a part two this weekend, next week. I, I love what, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke does in this gospel narrative. And so the first seven chapters of Luke's gospel account are really a uh, retelling of the ministry of Jesus as per his local Galilean ministry, meaning the first seven chapters of this account that Luke shows us He shows us Jesus and in his local context. And then what happens, shifting in verse 8, is he begins to show us Jesus' sent ministry, meaning his itinerant ministry, the ministry where he begins to go. And what I love about this shift is that Jesus has begun to model for us the ministry that he's giving to us. So as a Christian, your ministry is not to stay. First off, I guess I should back up to say that as a Christian, you've been given ministry. Wherever you are planted, that is your ministry. And so your life as a Christian is not to just live a really good life. Your life as a Christian is to carry the gospel just as it came to you. It should go through you into someone else. And so that involves you then carrying it. And we'll unpack that here in a little bit. But it also calls for you to go. And Jesus models this for us through this text. And so today, we're in a pretty well-known text. A lot of you, if you've been raised in the church or grew up in the church, you probably heard some version of this. But there's a tension right in the center of this text that is rarely discussed, I've found. There's a a portion in this text that people just kind of gloss over. We focus on the seed and the four soils, but we don't always hit this tension. And we're going to talk about that today and this week. So the foundation that we are tackling today, the question that we're going to answer is how are people saved? How are people saved? And this is a pretty important question if if you're a Christ follower. I think it's a pretty important question even if you're not a Christ follower because if you're having questions about church, about Christianity, about faith, and one group of people, Christians, are, are claiming that people can be saved, I think you should know how we think people are saved. And I think if you're a believer... You should be able to answer that as well. How exactly are people saved? Now, I want to give just, I guess, a a side note to say, we are not going to dive into the nitty-gritty, the the depths of what this means. Uh, We're going to stay at 30,000 feet here on a Sunday morning. And and if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, a a quick picture is there have been theologians throughout the years who have written five, six hundred-page books answering this question. I'm not going to preach that this morning, if that makes any sense. So we're going to stay at the 30,000 foot level, and so Lord willing, um, God moves in our time, and we can answer this question, and there can be some assurance in in our salvation as well as we answer this question. So Luke chapter 8, let's dive right in. Let me encourage you this. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, you should open it. Uh, If you do not have it with you or whatever, we have some in the back. If it's not open, you should open it because I'm going to be moving through some of these texts very quickly, um, and and I'm not going to be throwing them all up on the screen just to make your life a little easier. It'd be better to open the Word. So here we go, Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. It starts off and it says, And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, so who is this great crowd is kind of the first thing that we're going to, the question that we're going to answer so we can get to the answer uh, of the primary question. But we need to discern what, who is Jesus speaking to? And this is key because our message delivery changes depending on the crowd that we're speaking to. Our message doesn't change, but the delivery in which we give that message does change. And so what you're going to see in the way that Jesus lays out 
the, these points and these kind of answers to this question, he lays out in a very specific fashion because he's speaking to three specific people groups. Now, Luke doesn't give us any context to this necessarily, but the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark recount this same story. And they do give us some context clues of exactly who Jesus is speaking to. The first group of people he's speaking to are, are the group called the Pharisees. These are religious rulers and leaders. These are the kind of the pious, very wealthy, uh, very prominent people of the Jewish faith. They're a specific section of them. They have a very specific uh, set of beliefs, but they are kind of the people overseeing a lot of the Jews in that time, and they were very pious. They were very much rule followers and legalists, and they're, they're in this group. The second group of people would be the disciples. These are the people who follow Jesus. They, they have given him everything they have. They've abandoned a lot of things at home, and they are beginning to join Jesus in this sent ministry. Lord willing, you and I are there with them as we're reading this text. We are the disciples of Jesus. So group one is the Pharisees. Group two are the disciples. And the group three are the intrigued people. These are the people who have heard about Jesus. They've maybe heard of the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. And so as Jesus begins this sent ministry, and they begin to travel to different towns, the disciples and Jesus, these other groups of people hear, hey, this, this guy Jesus is coming to a town. In some sense, it's like the days of like Barnum and Bailey Circus to them. Meaning, there's something really cool happening, and it's coming to my town. Whether I believe or not, I want to go check out what this Jesus guy is doing. And so that is who this great crowd is. Matthew and Mark kind of show us that Jesus actually even steps on a boat and pushes off so that he can begin to preach to this great crowd and uh, if you've watched the, the Chosen series, they have a very interesting artistic rendition of this. Whether it's true or not, I thought it was really interesting. If you don't know what the Chosen series is, it's a, a TV series kind of unpacking the gospel, the life of Jesus. And so what they depict this scene as is Jesus is preaching in a field, and then he has disciples scattered throughout this field. So as Jesus preaches, he would take a break so that the disciples who were scattered could then repeat the same message to the other people in the field because there were that many people that his voice could not go as far as it needed to go. And so these disciples would repeat the same teaching as Jesus. Now again, that's extra biblical, not true. But I think what, what it does, it gives us a picture. And you get the same one from the Gospels. Is there's a ton of folks that have come to listen to Jesus. And I want you to be aware of that because... I think in some ways, we think that the proclamation of God's Word and the, the preaching is sometimes meant to be spoon-fed to people. But what we're going to get is a very different picture from God. He does not spoon-feed people in this moment. As a matter of fact, His words would say, He actually might be make, makes it a little difficult for some. He makes it hard for some to understand and receive. So we need to know this is who the great crowd is. What else does he talk about? Well, he talks about these soils and the seed. So what are these soils and what is the seed? I have some folks in the congregation who have volunteered or voluntold to be a part of this with me. And so as I call your, uh, I guess, your element your seed or your soil, if you'll make your way up here in just a minute, that would be great. This portion is where it would come very, uh, it would be very handy for you to have your Bible with me because if you'll notice in the text, there's kind of a paragraph where it's four through eight and then it's nine through 15. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first paragraph in, in bits and pieces where Jesus kind of says the parable. And then I'm going to go to where he has the interaction with the disciples and he unpacks what the parable is. So I want to make sure that you're following along. If you're taking notes, this, is, this might come a little quick to you, but that's why I said you have your Bible so you can make a quick note. So verse 5, it says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, skip down to verse 11, Jesus is going to unpack this. It says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Where's my seed at? Where, where, where'd she go? There you go. Come on down. 
So we have this seed. Grace, you are the seed. You, you can stay down there. That's perfect. There it is. Everybody say, hey, Grace. There it is. First one, she had, you know, she had to be brave. She's up here by herself. So she is the seed. Now, what does Jesus say that the seed is? The Word of God. Now, what is the Word of God? What does this mean? What is, what is Jesus really saying? And so before I say that, I want to explain the sower. And so this, this analogy that Jesus is actually painting for the receivers of that day and for you and I is you would have this great field. And I don't think of our perfectly manicured fields that we might have today. This could be a field that has some rough terrain. It could be uh, perfect in some areas and not so perfect in others. It would, generally speaking, have a path somewhere in there. And so you'll hear that in one of the soils. Uh, but this sower would walk around with kind of like a backpack that's on the front, kind of like one of those, I guess, a baby pack, right? Like you'd have the, you know, the seeds right here in the front. And they would, the sower would reach in and then throw the seed, like, like so. And so some of the seed would fall exactly maybe where the sower would want to, and then other seeds would not. And so this is the picture that he's showing to them that they would have seen probably regularly in their agrarian lifestyle, that there would have been sowers in many, in many fields throwing seed. And he says that this seed that is thrown is the Word of God, which means it is the gospel. It is the good news. Now, I know we're in church, and I think sometimes we all believe that, oh, everybody in church knows the gospel. Well, I have found that that's not necessarily true. If I said, hey, what is the gospel, and had you write down the answer, some of you would write Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I've just done this enough that it's true. And Pastor Mateo's laughing because he knows I'm right. So we would write Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. That is a gospel account. Of, uh, you know, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But what is the gospel? Gospel literally means good news. So in the day and time, we've talked about this before, in a Roman society, they would actually say this word gospel or good news in reference to any decree or word from who? From Caesar, from king, from president, whatever way you want to think about that in your mind, from the leader, he would show up in their cities and their messengers, the, their evangelo, would say, hey, I have a gospel for you. I have the good news for you. We've raised your taxes by 37%, right? And that's literally what the people were trained to think. of. This is the good news of whenever someone comes with this decree from Caesar, but what does Jesus do? Through the disciples, he, he flips this script, and he uses the same word that is abused and broken by the people to say, no, 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 I actually have good news. And here is that good news. That you were broken. You were dead in your trespasses. But I, the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, this is his words, am coming to give you new life. I'm coming to give you abundant life and a way back to Jesus, back to God, the Father. Through the sacrifice that I'm going to make on the cross, I will become the sacrificial lamb so that you no longer have to go through the rituals of sacrificing something every year. I will become that for you, and I will reunite you with God the Father, in essence, making you family again. That is the good news. And so what he is declaring here as the seed is that the sower goes out and proclaims the word of God by throwing the seed. Y'all give it up for grace. Thank you. Soil number one, come on down. Go ahead and turn with me again, verse five. It's kind of the latter part, verse 5b. It says, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Skip down to verse 12. What does Jesus say this means? He says, the ones along the path are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and they may not be saved. Soil number one represents the people who are hard of heart, people who have a hard heart. And so if you remember when I talked about this idea of the field, there were paths. And so where there are paths, as the sower th throws the seed, some of those will fall near the path or maybe even on the path. It isn't one of those fancy machines that you can put like a little, you know, a guide on and it pushes. It's only going to go to the middle to the right. This cat's just out here throwing seed like this. And, and, and this is a faithful thing to remember. 
he isn't necessarily doing it, or she isn't necessarily doing it, not caring about the seed, what is he doing? He's trusting that God's in control. Because his job isn't to make the seed grow. What is his job? To just throw it. His job is to just throw it. Paul echoes this same sentiment. He says, we, we throw seed, we pour water, but God makes things grow. And so you have this picture of a path where the sower is throwing seed. And yet, what happens? It's trampled underfoot. It never takes good root. These are people, if you're looking for who, who, who would fit into to soil number one, these are people who the Scripture would say that when they hear the gospel or think about the gospel, they would say, oh, the gospel is silly. It's folly. When we look around the world and many say, oh, creation cries out for a creator. Like we can, we can walk outside and notice that, man, I don't think this just kind of bang came together. I think there was some sort of higher power putting this together. Whether I believe in Jesus or not, there's a ton of people in our world who would give that assertion. These would not be those people. These would be the people that go, nope, it's Big Bang. It, it, it can't be a higher power. It can't be anything else because I can't, I can't really fathom this. It only can be this direction. I'm, I'm hard of heart. There's no way there could ever be a creator who actually did all this because he loved me. I'm hard of heart. I cannot see this way. The interesting point in, in, in this passage about soil number one, this is where Jesus specifically states the devil. He doesn't do it in the other two, but it is certainly in implied but in this one, he, he specifically states the devil's presence. Why does he do this? Well, I think it kind of harkens back to maybe a story, if you think about the story of Job. What happens in the story of Job? Job is a righteous man. And Satan comes to God and says, well, of course he's righteous. You've given him everything. Let me take some stuff away and we'll see how righteous he is. And over 42 chapters, what happens to Job? Things are taken away. Family is lost. Pain comes his way. There are certainly moments where Job is struggling. There are moments where his friends are saying, dude, you done jacked up. You need to like repent. You've done something wrong. God is punishing you. And what do we see in the end? The Job just says, Lord, it's your life. Whatever you want me to do. So how, how, can we, how can we relate? How can, how can this be something? Why would God allow this to happen? Let me, let, let me maybe give you a... a something that might soften the blow. I can't exactly tell you 100% why sometimes suffering happens outside of two things. Number one, sin. So, like, it just is what it is. We broke this world through defying God, through going against what He has asked and what He has, uh, f you know, foretold us to do. We went against Him, and because of that, we received death and pain and sin. That's number one. Number, number two, this, the second reason why, why this happens is I, I believe what he's referring to, what he's going to point us to, is the, the beautiful picture of what the Messiah is, is going to do. So here, here's Jesus. He's preaching this message. Many probably don't know this at the time, but what did, Satan, uh, what did Jesus go through with Satan just a couple of weeks or months earlier? He went through a temptation period with Satan. God allows his son to come down and, and take on flesh, live a perfect life, and then be tempted by Satan. I need you to, to get that. Why would God send his son to come and to be tempted by Satan? It's so that we can connect with him. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so when we look at Jesus and we try to fathom who God is, what Scripture tells us to do is to point back to and look back to the person and the work of Jesus. So when you say, oh, I can't relate with God, remember that all of the temptation in your life, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Satan was allowed to tempt and to toil into Jesus' life, and Jesus withstood because of the power of the Holy Spirit within him. So we don't worship a God who doesn't understand you. 
We worship a God who knows you and fully experienced everything that you have experienced. Soil number one is a person who has a hard heart, and they can't fathom this. Thank you, soil number one. Soil number two, come on down. Turn your scriptures to verse six. It says, and some fell on the rock, and as, that, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Verse 13, Jesus is explaining it. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Soil number two are those with not enough root. So I, I, I don't know when the change happened, but at some point I became like a dad who likes grass. Okay? And I'm not talking about like 1970s grass. I'm talking about like <laughs> legitimate grass. Right? So th- there was a moment in my life where I started studying grass. You know, is it centipede? Is it St. Augustine? Is it fe- I mean, there would be t- is it fescue? There's times when I'd be walking and Amy would go, what kind of grass is that, Chris? Right? <laughs> just, just poking fun at me. We bought a house a couple years ago, and the backyard is very shaded. It's very moist. It doesn't have a lot of grass. And so I, I decided to try and grow some grass in, in this backyard. And so I started doing research of, like, what type of soil, what type of grass can, can I you know, use back here, what, 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 what would work, and, and all these different things, and so I came up with an answer, and so I went out, and I bought this seed, and I prepared the soil as I, was, as I was supposed to, and I planted the grass, and man, it sprung up, and it was green, it was beautiful, it was, I was like, man, I got this, and then July came, <laughs> and that joker turned brown in like 1.25 days, it was burnt up, it was done, and Why? It didn't have a good enough root. It was not deep enough to where the nutrients that it needed, it could hold them through the difficult times. It sprung up with proverbial joy, but fell away. What we need to know about this second soil is throughout this region where Jesus is speaking, underneath the the kind of top soil, there was a, a layer of limestone in certain places. And so as they would plant seed, sometimes these, these seedlings would find their place where there would be a, you know, an inch or two, maybe some topsoil, but then a layer of limestone would be there. And so their root would never penetrate through the limestone. And so they would never have a deep enough root to be able to withstand the heat. And so they got out of the kitchen, if you know what I'm saying. Who, what type of people are these? Jesus kind of unpacks this. Those who received it with joy, but because they have no root, they fell away. And and our normal language, thinking about who this could be, these could be people who made an emotional emotional decision. This is why when we take kids to camps or college students to conferences or even we we do retreats with adults, we, we try to very consciously have conversations about making sure that you're not just wrapped up in the emotions of the moment. We even talk about this as a staff for Sunday morning because, I don't know if you know this or not, but music written today is written in a way that wants you to cry. Like it just, like you don't even know the words to some songs, but the melody and the, the chord progression is just like Niagara Falls. Like it's coming, right? And so if we're not careful, we'll get a guy up here, man, he'll, he'll play a sweet little riff. You know, the lights will change. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll go to this moment. Jesus, Jesus, right? It's all that. And then we'll leave and there'll be no change. What was that? It was an emotional decision. It it was something that, if we're honest, somebody manipulated. And so what you see in soil number two is somebody who maybe went through an emotional decision. And maybe for a time, the emotions carried them through. But then when the hard parts of life came, they fell away. Maybe the second, another type of person in this soil that doesn't have enough root is someone who's kind of in the information dysphoria phase. 
Meaning that they, they think they can believe in God. They want, to, they want to believe in Jesus and the Gospel and the, the whole good news. But as they look around the world and they hear all of these new age of enlightenment thinkings and they hear about aliens and they, they hear about science, they don't have a deep enough root to truly believe in the person and the work of Jesus. And so all of these false teachings or teachings that are maybe a little skewed or somebody else's perspective, what does it do? It moves them further and further away from the gospel. Maybe it's somebody experiencing difficulty in life. You know, when we go through moments of difficulty where there's death and there's loss and there's tragedy around us, one of the first questions everybody asks, whether they're a believer or not, is why God? God, why would you allow this thing to happen? And this second soil doesn't have a deep enough root, doesn't have a connection with God, a, a, a theological understanding to recognize that sometimes bad things happen because sin. Other times bad things happen, God allows them to come our way so that we can be refined by the fire. Think about Job's story again. He was refined in those moments. The gospel was revealed through the sacrifice of Job. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? They went through difficult moments. It wasn't necessarily so that they could enjoy it. Right? But it was certainly so that the gospel would be made known and that God would be proclaimed and the glory of who He is would be shown to those around. Soil number two, not enough root. Thank you. Soil number three. Soil number three. Verse seven. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. Fast forward to verse 14. Jesus is explaining it again. And he says, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Soil number three are the people who fall into the worldly wash. The worldly wash. These are people who desire the things of this world greater than they desire Jesus. I heard Charles Stanley preach a message earlier this week. A recorded message, obviously. Where he's talking about the rivalry in our heart. And he says, there are some of you out there who don't know this, but you, you say you believe Jesus, but there is a rival in your heart. And if you are not careful, the rival wins nine out of ten times. And he's referring to this soil number three. They, they can't follow through on the things of the Lord. I, I, think about this. I think sometimes we make fun of famous people um, and we kind of mock them. Imagine trying to live out your faith as a famous person today. I mean, imagine how difficult, like when you go to Walmart and Publix, for the most part, nobody knows who you are. When they go anywhere, everyone knows who they are. And so they are un under the constant microscope of this world. And as they take a stance here and there, what happens? Scrutiny constantly comes their way. There could be people who the fame of their life caused their faith to crumble. Think about people who are faced with difficult ethical and moral decisions. And as they make their way through life, the idea of succeeding and becoming successful when placed with a decision to make a moral, ethical failure becomes paramount because the money and the prestige and the position that they could receive by making a poor decision outweighs the decision of following Jesus. Let's hit home. People in the worldly wash. What about this? People who don't lean on Christ for their future on this earth. And here's what I mean. We often think of tithing as a means to support the church or maybe even obedience. But tithing 
is primarily an action that leads our hearts to trust in Jesus rather than our bank accounts. Like you've probably heard it said before that Jesus speaks about money more than anything else he's in Scripture. But yet when we get to tithing in the church, we don't want to talk about it. It's a difficult thing. I, I read recently that the average giver in a church annually right now gives somewhere between $2,400 and $2,600 in a year. However, the average income in the U.S. is about $74,500. So on average, the people who give in church, based on those two numbers, give about 3% of their income. And, and I bet that the numbers are even worse than that because it doesn't account for the wealthy business owner who gave a large gift or even gifts that serve as outliers and skew the church numbers up. Back at our family gathering a few weeks ago, I kind of bragged on our church about our giving. And I, I made a statement that said something like 57 out of 71 households of, of people who have a seat at the table gave financially in the past year. Man, and I had people who were like, yeah, it's amazing, it's so good. And listen, it is good. Let me say that. It is good that 57 out of 71, of the 71 households that say, this is my church, gave. But I, I want us to, to notice something. Giving and tithing are not the same thing. So tithing is this kind of Old Testament principle and word that we've brought into the New Testament that kind of begins with this understanding of tenth. Now, you say brought in from the Old Testament. That means tithing doesn't exist anymore. You're right. So in the New Testament principle of biblical giving, it's everything you have is his. So which one do you want? Right? So when we talk about giving, when we talk about trusting, when we look at this third soil of the worldly wash of, man, trusting Jesus for my future on this earth, what we need to know is that 14 for us, so we had 57 out of 71 households gave, but only 14 out of those 71 truly fulfilled what we would call tithing. And here's, oh, how do you know that, Chris? Well, you base it off of an average income for your area. And you go, so if our average income in making, which right now is like 64000 bucks, we would say somebody who tithed to Piedmont gave about $6,400. Now, listen, we are not going through the list and going, well, Amy Barbie and Chris Barbie gave, you know, X amount of dollars, and these people over here gave Y, and so they love Jesus more or they love Jesus more. It is not my job to look at your, your, your finances and go, you love Jesus or you don't. That's your job. Like, I, I'm just here to lead you to the water. You drink it or not. So we don't sit around and have little huddles about, well, we need to get people to give, you know, 5% more. That's not, that's, you know what I want you to do? I, I get in huddles and go, how can we lead people to love Jesus and follow his ways and his teaching? We do analyze, are we a, a generous church? Are we a church that looks at tithing and giving as a means to invest in God's kingdom? Or do we just look at it as another thing that we have to do? You know, we, we, we've had discussions about churches who aren't passing the bucket anymore, and, and they're, they're kind of doing different things, and one of the things I've told my friends is part of the, the practice of, of passing a bucket on a Sunday morning for me is a reminder that when I put something in that bucket or I did it online at the first of the month or whatever I did because I have a recurring gift or, you know, whatever, it's a reminder of worship. It's a reminder that Whatever I am giving, I'm trusting in Him. And so when we look at this third soil, don't walk away, by the way, thinking, well, Pastor just wanted to talk about giving. This, this is, what is he talking about here? He's talking about people who the, the riches and pleasures of life took over. The rivalry of stuff became more than the person and the work of Jesus. So if we don't talk about tithing as a church, we ain't preaching this text. 
So you can get mad at me all you want. Get mad at Jesus too. We have to, as a people, as someone who says, man, I put my faith on Jesus, we have to begin to model that with our tithing and with our generosity because this is who God has called us to be. The last one that would fit in, in soil number three. And if you've noticed a trend, right? Soil number one, less examples, because it's pretty easy. They're heart to heart. Soil number two, a little more example, a little, little diving in deeper because we need to understand it. But soil three is probably the most difficult because if we're honest with ourselves and where we live, we live in a very wealthy place in life. Few people in this room struggle with what you're eating for lunch. Yes, there are people in our nation that do that. But as a nation, we have more resources than probably a lot of other nations. And so we have a lot of wealth. And so what does Spider-Man say? With great power comes great responsibility. Y'all all know that one. Let's do a Bible verse together. Anyway, um, JK. The fourth type in the soil, number three, is people who assimilate. This, this is where a relationship with Jesus turns from a conversation to just a religion. It's a set of beliefs. If you're ever wondering, like, how, how do I know if, if I've fallen into this place where I just I have a religion and I don't have a relationship? I, I, I would ask you this question. What convicts you and stirs your heart? What convicts you and stirs your heart? I, I heard a, a pastor recently read the passage from Revelation chapter 7. And I, I'm trying to speed up. I, I, I get this is a lot of heavy stuff. So Revelation 7 is this picture where people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are around the throne singing praises to the Lord. It's a picture of the end times. It's this glorious picture of singing praises to God. And, and the pastor looks at the, the, the crowd and he says, did you know that 1.5 billion people around the world don't have the ability to do what we just read? Meaning, they can't sing and proclaim the praises of God in their native tongue because the, native, the, the gospel has never come to them in the native tongue. They've never, they've never heard the good news because it's not in their language or no one has been sent to then translate that Jesus came to save you. And we have, we have droves of bands, this guy goes on, worship bands, churches that produce songs and make millions upon millions of dollars based on their music. How many of them are then sending money to get the... Bible translated to then send to that 1.5 billion so that they can sing the ultimate song of praise. Now, you, you might be sitting there thinking, well, if nobody's ever heard the gospel, then they, they can't be guilty, so they have to go to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. 1.5 billion people in our world today, right now, if they were to perish, they would not spend eternal life with Jesus. That should convict us. That should stir our hearts. So how do you know if you're in a relationship with Jesus or just walking through religion? What stirs your hearts? What stirs your affection for him? Soul number three, appreciate it. Soul number four, come on down. This one's pretty easy. Believers. Turn to the scripture with me, verse 8. It says, And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. Verse 15. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear with patience. Two words there that are key. Hold fast and bear fruit. These are people who endure. Now, I don't want you to read from this that Christians are perfect. They are not. We are not. I am not. We fall and we, we fail on a regular basis. Listen, you've probably heard stories upon story of pastors having moral and ethical failures, and yet, here's what I need you to hear, they could still believe and trust and have assurance in their salvation. 
just because you've messed up, and maybe it was massive, maybe it was just absolutely huge, that does not mean that you're not saved. A moment or moment of last judgment does not disqualify you from the family of God. What does he say? It's the person who believes and endures is the one that is his. It's the one that's in the good soil. I want to unpack that more so long before you can sit down because you'll stand up the rest of the sermon. I want to answer this question after we've looked at these four soils and the seed. Answer the question. Hopefully you've got a kind of basic understanding of the text and we're going to get to a difficult part. We're going to unpack a little bit more of how we know we're number four next week. But here's the question. How are people saved? And here's the answer. Through the reception of the proclamation of the gospel, the good news, and having a life that bears fruit is the proof of the connection to the vine. Who is Jesus? How do we know we're saved? We've received and responded to the proclamation of his word. You can go back to that slide. And then we live a life that bears fruit and proof of that connection. R.C. Sproul, a famous theologian, said it like this. We are not justified by just a profession of faith, but rather a possession of genuine faith. So I want to walk you through really quickly, as fast as I can, how are people saved? Point number one, we need to have a, a framework Point number one is this, that God desires for people to be saved. Like, how are people saved? We need to begin with the, the understanding and the belief that God does want you to be saved. Ezekiel 33 says, Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, or you will die. O house of Israel. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish. Does he say not wishing that some? No, he said not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we got we to gotta start off with this understanding that God desires for people to be saved. The second thing is we, we need to know that he did make a way for people to be saved through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, the Christ who was crucified on the cross and raised again three days later. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says to a group of people. He's made a way for you and I to be saved. Lean in, don't, 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 don't. Look, the, he who has ears, let him hear, right? Lean in, I'm, I'm getting there. Number three, here's how. We are saved when we've heard the proclamation of this good news and we respond, but there's something clutch and key that we cannot miss. What is a response? What does it mean to respond? Looking at the, the, the scripture that we just read in Luke 8, and the understanding of these four soils. Let's, let's go somewhere else. Romans 10. It says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will then be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is, this is paramount. Please don't miss this. I need you to understand this. Do not take... That text, that Romans 10, at face value, meaning do not take it out of context. We need to know what the biblical understanding of salvation is because many of us in this room, myself included, hold a stance of once saved, always saved. Meaning once you're in Christ, who can separate you from the love of God is what he says in Romans. We hold this stance, this belief, this, this idea that a child of God will always be a child of God. Once you've been adopted into the family of God, you will forever be his son or daughter. We base this off of Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to do what? To separate us from the love of God. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But here is what, what is very clear from Scripture, that these verses 
don't necessarily say alone. A one-time profession without a life of possession is not living out the spirit of God's words. With our hearts, we believe, it says. With our mouths, we confess. But with our feet is where we follow. So if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and you do not follow with your feet, do you actually do that? Get married. Tell your bride, tell your husband that you love them and don't live like that ever and ask them if they believe you. They won't, right? Because you're not following up with that. Oh man, I I love you. I want the best for you. And then never do anything for the best of them. Romans 10 and passages like Matthew 10 cover the understanding of our heart and our mouth and confession. But what about our feet? We, we can't stop just, oh man, I said a prayer one day. I believed it in my heart, but nothing changed in my life. Jesus addresses this. 1 John 2.2. This is talking about the, kind of the sent ministry. We, 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 we cover it in the doing. John says about Jesus, he says, he's the propitiation for our sins, the payment, the, the offering, the atonement. And now for ours only, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. By this. What does he say? Not that you believed and confessed. He says what? If you keep his commandments. John 14, 15, Jesus looks back at his disciples. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Book of James says that faith without works is dead. What is our passage putting us, or what is our passage saying to us? It's saying that a response to follow Jesus receives the gospel with a good heart and then bears fruit with patience. A person who bears fruit lives out their newborn identity in Christ because they've been made family with God. And they serve as Jesus served. And then we go out and we live as a missionary because we've been inspired and indwelt by the Holy Spirit to do so. So maybe the question for you this morning is which soil are you? Which soil are you? One, two, three, Lord willing, number four. Jesus said, those who have ears, let them hear. Listen, God, God's desire and my desire is to see you run to the grace that Jesus offers. Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Will you unburden yourself this morning? Turn from your sins and come to Jesus. Will you repent and believe? This parable of the soils, parable of the sower, we're going to unpack a little deeper next week and how you can have assurance in your salvation. But maybe you're there this morning and you're saying, what if I'm one, two, or three? It's easy. Repent, believe, and follow. After I pray, the brand's going to come up. We're going to, we're going to play a song. If you would like prayer, if you, you'd like to have a conversation about what next steps might look like, giving your life to Jesus, being soil number four and living it out, some of the elders and myself will be in the back. You can slip in the back, come talk to us. We, we'd love to pray for you. Talk. If you want to learn about how to get a seat at the table, and, and walk this thing out with us together or talk about baptism, following Jesus.
in, in, in being baptized, being born again, representing that to the whole church, saying I'm following him with everything that I have and I, I want the church to know it. We'd love to talk with you about that during this next song. No matter where you are this morning, I want you to reflect. Where, what, soil, what, what soil are you? And if you're soil number four, I'd be saying, what are we doing with the scent ministry? Meaning, how are you living it out? How are you being and functioning as a family of servant missionaries right where God's planted you? Let me pray. Lord, I know we unpacked some heavier things this morning. And anytime we ask the question of how are people saved, there's a lot of question marks in our own heart about what, where we are and are we justified before a holy and righteous God. I just pray for the Spirit right now to fill this room, fill this place, both with conviction but with comfort as well. For those of us that need to be convicted and, and shown that we are dead spiritually, we are separated from God the Father, but that's not the end of our story. I pray that your spirit reveal to them that Jesus has made a way. Jesus has made a way to, for them to have abundant life here and now. For those that are wrestling with what soil they are and trying to understand and discern what it means to confess, believe, and follow, we just go give them a big hug like you, like you do. Give them a, a sense of comfort if they're in Christ that nothing is going to separate them from your love. And then assure them to walk that out in this world. Lead them to go love you, love others, and invest in your kingdom. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen.